have a Bible tonight, let's open up to Psalm uh, chapter 50. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, I, I encourage you to man, have one in your, in your lap. Uh, maybe you can raise your hand and they'll bring one to you. Or you can even go to the back and we have some Bibles if anyone's interested. Because it's so much better, you know, when you're reading along and you're looking at it as we're teaching. Because uh, we cover a kind of a lot of ground on, on the midweek service. But tonight is in Psalm 50 is basically a psalm of judgment. And it's God's judgment on his church and God's judgment on the world that doesn't know the Lord, you know. Uh, And then Psalm 51, it's kind of cool to go through these two psalms together tonight because Psalm 51 is all about God's amazing grace, how God is willing to forgive us of our sins, you know. And so um, I, I pray we would know both of these things. You know, we deserve death. We deserve hell. Uh, I'm worse than you, I'm sure, in many ways. You guys didn't know me before I was a Christian. All messed up. You know, this Saturday I get to give my testimony at uh, the, the event. And I'm just, uh, I'm just, man, thinking, Lord, um, I know my wife was saying, you know, you look different now than before. She's, oh, I knew you then, and you were really bad. And, uh, and I know what I deserve. You know, when I was uh, getting high and getting drunk and driving, not even knowing, I mean, completely you know, driving under the influence, not even remembering, man, when I drove under those conditions. If I would have died at that state, I would have gone to hell, straight to hell. That's what I deserve. You know, and just the difference changed me, set me free from drugs and alcohol and all the stuff that, you know, young guys do, you know. And so uh, just knowing I deserve judgment, knowing kind of like in one sense, standing before the judge and he should just you know, throw me into prison and and throw away the key, knowing that that's what I deserved, it helps so much more than when you understand you're saved. You know, because a lot of times people, they don't appreciate, you know, what the Lord has done for them because they don't really realize what they really deserved. And so it's kind of neat having these two chapters. But you got to understand God's a holy God. You know, some people wonder, well, why doesn't God just let everybody go to heaven? You know, because God's forgiving and God's gracious and God's loving, right? But God's also holy. That's his number one attribute, his holiness. And so imagine a rapist standing before the judge and the judge saying, well, it's no big deal. Go ahead. You know, you're free. You don't have to do any time. You don't need uh, judgment. I mean, absolutely not. We wouldn't do that. You know, uh, we would want justice. That's not right. He can't get away with that. Well, that's kind of how it is with God. You know, we have sinned against God. We have sinned against God. And therefore, we deserve that judgment. And so what God did is he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for our sins. All the things that you've ever done. You know, all of us have sinned, right? Have you guys all sinned? If you say you haven't sinned, you're sinning right now, okay, because you're lying. You know, we've all lied. If you lied, then you're a liar. You know, you ever stole anything from anywhere? I know me, even as a kid, I used to go to the little drugstore, and I used to steal stuff all the time, man. Take money from my aunt and uncle. I mean, you name it. You know, uh, we're we're thieves. Uh, You ever uh, lusted after a girl or some of you girls, you lusted after a guy you know, it, it makes you a fornicator or adulterer because the things that we do in our heart, it, it, it makes us guilty. And so 
We've all sinned, but Jesus died for our sins. All the things that you have ever done all your life, you look back, everything you did, man, all the crazy stuff that you did, the people that maybe you beat up or whatever. I mean, I did dumb things, slashed tires for no reason, you know, breaking in, you know, to schools and, and stuff. I mean, all the crazy stuff that we did, they were all on him. He bore that sin and he bore every aspect of the punishment that we deserve. I mean, the way that I used to disrespect my mom and, and different people and things, I mean, all the wrongs that I've ever done, they were all laid on him. He suffered the punishment that we deserve. He paid the price. And so when he rose again, he proved who he was, and it's then that we're saved. And so we just got to know, and as we place our faith in Jesus Christ, listen, if you want to know for sure that when you die, you'll go to heaven, this is the only way you have to believe in Jesus Christ, not just in your head but in your heart. And when you do that, the moment you do that, then you're instantly saved. He's washed away all your sins. Everything you've ever done in the past, in the present, everything you'll ever do in the future, it's all taken care of. He nailed it to the cross and you are forgiven. You see, that's the gospel. But we have to know judgment. We have to know that we deserve judgment before we can really appreciate forgiveness. You know, I was reading about this guy, David Marks. He was one of the most uh, amazing evangelists in early American history. He was born to godly parents in the year 1805. And he started thinking about God early on in his life. Uh, one day, it was something that got him thinking about the Savior was when he was watching some flax burn. And he had heard the stories in, about the fires of hell. And so when he watched the flames, he thought how dreadful even one moment in hell would be. And so he began to talk to himself. You know how kids do that. What would I do if the wrath of God fell on the earth, he asked himself. And so after seriously thinking about it, he decided that if the judgment day would come on earth, he would descend into the well of water. Running to his mother, he shared his plan. He said, Mom, if the judgment of God comes on earth, then I'm going to run into the water. And the mom said, Oh, my son, the water will boil and the earth will burn. Well, so then he told her, Well, then what I'll do is I'll run to a spot where the rocks are and I'll hide. And she said, The rocks will melt. And so he was overwhelmed with the dread that he told her he would just die. He said, okay, then I'll just die and escape the wrath of God in the grave. But she said, my child, your hope is in vain, for the dead will awake and come out of their graves and stand before God as judge. And so young David went outside and he walked through the fields and he pondered the length and the reality of the coming day of the Lord and his being unprepared for it. And so putting his hand over his heart, he looked toward heaven and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And on that day, young David was saved. He went on to become a wonderful evangelist. You know, so us understanding we can't escape that day when we stand before God Man, it's so wonderful to know that all you have to do is humble yourself, admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and just ask Him for mercy, 
and he'll flood you not only with mercy, but with grace. And we're going to see that as we go through our psalm tonight. You know, overall, Psalm 50, it speaks of the Lord judging the people on planet Earth. And, and he has a, a word for them, uh, the righteous as well as the, the wicked. And, and so it's a heavy psalm. Let's read it beginning in Psalm 50, verse 1. It's a psalm of Asaph. And it says, the, the mighty one... God the Lord has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its going down. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth. Our God shall come and shall not keep silent. A fire shall devour before him and it shall be very tempestuous all around him. And so we read there in verse 1 about the mighty one, and that obviously is emphasizing his might, his strength, his omnipotence. It's God. It says there in verse 1, the Lord, and that's capital L-O-R-D. So that means he's not only powerful, that means he's personal, right? And, and, and just wanting to make it clear as to who he's talking about, it's the creator God coming, calling with the message. It's for the whole earth. That's what we read there in verse 1, from the rising of the sun to its going down. And he's coming, we're going to see, and we're all going to give an account for that day. So do you guys ever think about that? Do you ever think about standing before God and giving an account? You know, one day we will, and he's coming. And I think when we look around at the world today, I think it can happen any time now, very, very soon. I love what we read there in verse 2. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth, you know? I mean, God is going to come, but it's interesting. In one sense, it's not a friendly visit this time. You know, the first time Jesus came, it was friendly. You guys know about him, right? He was a lamb, love, laid down his life, died on a cross, gentle, meek, humble. That was the Lord the first time, right? But the second time, look out, right? You guys know, right? He's coming as a lion. So if you had, you know, to go to the zoo, and I know you guys wouldn't do this, but, and you had two choices of where to hang out, would you hang out with the lamb or would you hang out with the lion? We're talking going inside. You go with the, you go with the lamb. I choose the lamb, <laughs> You know, and you go into the lion, he's going to devour you. He's going to devour you, right? That's what happens the second time that Jesus is coming. He's coming as a lion. He's coming as judge. The first time he came as savior. And so the, the, the second time, it's not a, a friendly visit. Notice again there in verse 3 that a, fower, a fire devours before him. Hey, that tempestuousness is this storm it's a great storm that's raging all around him. And so we read in verse 4 that he shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge. Notice his people. Gather my saints together to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Let the heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. Now it's interesting in verse 4, that, we, that God calls for a, a gathering of his saints. You know, gather my saints together to me. You know, the saints who have, by covenant, you know, come into this 
relationship. In verse 7, he calls them my people. Notice again there in verse 7, he says, those who have made a covenant with me by, I'm sorry, hear my people Israel, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. And so it's interesting, God is about to testify against his people. Have you guys ever gone to court? Some of you here, you've never been there, huh? I'm so proud of you. <laughs> Some of you have, right? You go to the courtroom, and you have the judge sitting up there in a seat, and you have people who testify. Okay, so here God is testifying, but God is also judge. And it's interesting when you look at it. And, and right here we visualize the courtroom scene, and, and God is going to judge but he's going to testify, first of all, against his people. Look what we read uh, next in verse 8. He says, I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your house, nor goats out of your folds. For every beast of the field is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine in all its fullness. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. So what's going on here? You know, um, the Bible says that judgment begins in the house of the Lord. And so it's kind of interesting, like on his way to judge the earth, he kind of first deals with his people. Now, if you're a Christian here today, uh, you don't have to worry about hell because that's taken care of. Jesus died for you on the cross. You're going to go to heaven. But you do have to be concerned about this thing called God's chastening. Or God's discipline. You know, if you're living in sin, then God's going to give you a trancaso. Amen? And you should fear the Lord for that. And he kind of rebukes his people now at this point. And then he kind of goes in here because really every time people go to church, there's always some that aren't really saved. There's always some that they go every week, but they don't really know the Lord. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. You know, I was baptized when I was little and I went to, you know, my catechism, First Holy Communion and confirmation or whatever. And, you know, you got all that stuff and you go every week. It doesn't mean you're going to heaven. And so he's going to be dealing with stuff like this. And, And in looking at it right here, God doesn't really rebuke his people for any lack of religion or ritual on their part. You know, they were pretty good at that. Sacrifices, burnt offerings, They were coming consistently and continually to God. But when you read this right here, I think God was kind of tired of the superficial stuff. You know, God goes on to say that he doesn't need the bulls. He doesn't need the goats or or the other animals. Uh, As a matter of fact, we read the reason there in verse 10 that he says, every beast of the forest is, is mine. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And so it's not necessarily that he needs those animals. God basically says there in verse 12 and 13 that he doesn't need that type of food. His fridge is full. 
you know, what he really hungers for is that we would live a life of gratitude towards him, that we would give thanks to God and that we would offer up a life that reflects thanksgiving. That's what we read there in verse 14. I don't want your animals. I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your religion. How about you living a life of gratitude? Do you, can you think of anything that you're grateful for? Everybody take a deep breath. He gave you that breath. Now that's heart that's beating inside of you. He keeps it beating. The world that's spinning right now, he's the one that does that, you know? I mean, we have so much to be grateful for, not just the physical life, you know? Thank God for the food that we have and, you know, the, 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 the roof over our head, clothes on our back. Not everyone has that kind of stuff. You know, we were talking today with some of the guys about some of the poorest villages in the world, and we were talking about Prevang. They don't have any running water. They don't have any electricity. You know, those are probably things that we could be grateful for. But, but, it, but more than anything else, we're grateful that we're his children. We're grateful that we are forgiven, right? T-G-I-F, thank God I'm forgiven. That's what that stands for, right? And that's what the Lord is saying. I'd rather have that than your religious stuff. You know, I mean, he says right there, not only that, uh, pay your vows. There in verse 14, pay your vows to the Most High. Have you ever made any promises to God? Yeah, Lord, I'll serve you. I'll serve you. Uh, I'll seek you. I'll, I'll whatever. I'll, I'll read my Bible from now on. You, you said that to God? Then pay up. I'll be a good husband, I'll be a good wife, I'll be a good parent, I'll be a good kid, whatever, I'll work hard, then do it. If you said it to God, if you made a vow to God, then, then do it. You know, we think especially of the marriage vows. The Bible says it's better not to vow than to vow and not pay. And so this is what, what God is asking for. You know, he wants us to fulfill our vows. He wants us to live a life of gratitude Basically, he wants us to go beyond the religion and into a relationship. Remember, that's what happened with Saul when, you know, the Lord had told him to go and take care of the Amalekites and wipe them out and give his people the victory. But Saul uh, compromised and, you know, just different things going on. In 1 Samuel 15, 22, it says, And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken or to heed than the fat of rams. And so, you guys, just remember that. You know, even for me as a pastor, you know, I, I read my Bible, I pray, I go to church, because I have to, okay, I, I come to church. I'm here most of the time. You know, but does that please God? No, he'd be much more interested in how I treat my wife and how I treat my kids, and, and what's going on in my heart. You know, some people go to church, and then they go, and they get high, or they sleep around. You know, God says, no, to obey is better than being religious. And, you know, and it's cool when you go to church, and you read the word, and you're in fellowship, and you live the life. That's what God is really interested in, right? 
You know, Jesus had rebuked the religious leaders in Matthew 23. In verse 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you paid tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, like justice and mercy and faith. He said, These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. I mean, here's guys, and it's good to tithe. You know, to tithe means you give a tenth to the Lord. These guys were tithing of their mint gardens. They would count one, two, three, four. Okay, take that one and give it to God. But they weren't being just or merciful or they didn't have real faith. Luke says in the same passage, they didn't have love. And so imagine you come and you guys, you know, you tithe, all right? So you make whatever, $40,000 a year, you give $4,000, you know, $267 to God, whatever. You're like, you're on spot, man, I tithe. But you don't show mercy. You don't show justice. You don't have love. That's what he's saying right here. God says, no, it's not about religion. It's about relationship. As a matter of fact, that's what we read there in verse 15. He says, call upon me, in the day of trouble, I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. You know, what a, a beautiful promise this is. God says this, pray. You know, I don't know if you guys are, are in that predicament. I wonder if any of you here find yourselves in that type of days, like you're dazed and confused because it's the days of trouble in your life. You know, I wonder if there's anybody here, you know, going through struggles right now. You know, my heart goes out to you. Our prayers go up for you. And I want to encourage you, according to this passage right here, to let your prayers go up as well. You know, call upon me in the day of trouble, and God promises, I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. You know, and I have a feeling, you guys, this is not just like, okay, Lord, you know, things are crazy at my, at my pad right now, and so, you know, I'm going to shoot up a, a quick prayer. I think it's more than that. I think it's like, man, this is a crazy day and time that I'm living in right now. So the enemy's really just all over me. And so I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to serve the Lord. I, I'm, I'm going to call upon God. I'm going to you know, not only get saved, but I'm going to seek him. And you watch. When you do that, God will rescue you. Because there's a war going on for your soul. And so to call upon the Lord is not just, you know, flicking up a quick prayer. It's just running to him. In more than a religion, it's a relationship. And that's what God wants you know, there's a, a really cool verse that's kind of similar to this one. In Nahum chapter 1, verse 7, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. The, the day of trouble, the Lord is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. You know, part of the reason I like that verse is because if you go to In-N-Out, it's on the wrapper of the double-double. Did you guys know that? You guys know that In-N-Out was founded by Christians, right? And so if you go to In-N-Out, something I think we should all do after service today, 
You know, you could read, I'm serious, uh, on, the, on the hamburgers and cheeseburgers, how many of you would get those? You're like, I like cheeseburgers. It's Revelation 3.20. You read it right there. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, right? If you get a French fry, how many of you would get French fries? Proverbs 24.16. A beverage cup, John 3.16. Milkshake, Proverbs 3.5. I think we should try them all. Water cut, John 14, 6. Even the, the license plates and keychains and merchandise has 1 Corinthians 13, 13. But the best of all at In-N-Out is by far the double-double. Amen? I've learned that because I try eating the cheeseburger. I'm like, man, there's something missing. <laughs> but when you do the double-double, it just for some reason, it's perfect. huh? There's something about it. And I think it has to do with this verse, Nahum 1.7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. You find that phrase nine times in the Bible, the day of trouble. Some days are just harder than other days. Maybe you're going through a season like that right now. I encourage you, trust the Lord. Call to Him, not just in a one-time prayer. Call to Him. Come to him as a Christian, right? And so we read in verse 16, however, he goes beyond his people that he's dealing with and he goes to the wicked. And it's scary. Look at verse 16. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth? Seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you. When you saw a thief, you consented with him. And I've been a partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I kept silent. You thought I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. And, and so... You know, God here, it's interesting now as we transition into verse 16. You know, he's talking to Israel, but there's an interesting passage in Romans 9, 6. It says, for they are not all Israel who are Israel. Not everybody who says they're a Christian is a Christian. Not everybody who wears a T-shirt is necessarily saved. And so, you know, he goes to Israel, but amongst them, there was people amongst them who didn't really know the Lord. And now he deals with them, you know, and it's a warning, you guys. It's a heavy warning. I pray all of you are saved, that you know, that you know, that you know the Lord. And I don't want to freak you out. Okay, I do not want to freak you out, but you do not have tomorrow guaranteed. I have to tell you that because you might die tonight. And you might go to hell and you had the opportunity to seek the Lord. You know, you had the opportunity to get saved. You had the opportunity to get serious with God. And you chose not to. You know, we all have to make that choice. And so it's a warning. This psalm is not just written, you know, to inform the wicked that they're going to hell. No, it's to warn you, <laughs> to save you because God loves you. There's hell. There's the door to hell. And God says, the only way you're going to go there is over my dead body. I don't want you to go there. And so he warns us, right? 
You know, um, some are wicked and unsaved. We see that in verse 16, and God tells them they have no right to teach God's truth or claim God's covenant in any conversation. I mean, who, some of them, you guys know this, Jesus, you know, dealt with those who were Pharisees and they didn't, weren't even saved. He called them sons of the devil, but there they are teaching, right? And we read here in verse 17 that in all reality, they hate God's word and they put it behind their backs. In verse 18, they steal with the thief and sleep around like the rest of the unsaved world who are adulterers. In verse 19 and 20, their lips are no good. Why? Because they speak words of deceit. It's interesting how it says right there in verse um, 19, and your tongue frames deceit. I mean, it's like there's an art to it. You know, it's interesting. And they slander uh, people even against their own biological brother. You know, it's a prayer request. Yeah, right, you know. In verse 21, they make a tragic mistake thinking that, you know, since God hasn't judged me, I mean, I've done this. God hasn't killed me. I'm not getting struck by lightning. They think then God's okay with it. No, you're just storing up judgment for yourself, Right? And so you have to look at the list, ask yourself if you're guilty about any of these things. Prayerfully, you're not. If you are, then you would get right. And so God, now we read at the end of verse 21, is about to judge and rebuke the wicked and list his charges against them. Notice what we read in verse 22. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces... That doesn't sound good, huh? And there be none to deliver you. Whoever offers praise glorifies me, and to him who orders his conduct the right, I will show the salvation of God. He says, carefully consider this, lest I rip you to shreds. Don't think anyone will be able to rescue you in that day. And when I read that, it puts fear in my heart, you know? I mean, when I think of my life before I was a Christian, I, I think what I read right there in verse 22 was me. It says, consider this, you who forget God. It's not necessarily like I was anti-God. I believed in God on paper. And, you know, every once in a while I'd watch something on TV or, or whatever. These people would share with me and I'd shed a little tear but then I just go back to my old life. It's like I forgot about him. Be careful, you guys, because that's what gets them in trouble. Verse 23 is such a beautiful verse because it talks about salvation. It talks about that when you live the life, it doesn't save you, but it shows that you're saved, you see? And that's how we can check our life, you know? And so 50 is a tough chapter. It's all about judgment, but 51 is so beautiful. It's about forgiveness. And we read Psalm 51, the background. It says to the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And so the biblical background is 2 Samuel 11 through 12. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to read it. David had fallen into sexual sin with Bathsheba. Remember, David went up on, on his roof and he saw down and there was Bathsheba. She was bathing. 
so she was in the nude, so to speak. And so he saw her, he sent for her, he questioned, well, is she married? Who is he? Oh, yeah, she's married. Didn't matter. And, and then he brought to her to him and he slept with her. He committed adultery. And you guys remember the story. It's a crazy story. Uh, he ended up uh, getting her pregnant and he tried to hide his sin, right? So he thought he could hide his sin by bringing her husband Uriah home who had been in the battlefield. And so he figured out, bring, her, bring him home. That way he'll go home and sleep with his wife and nobody will know that the child is mine, right? But it didn't work because Uriah, this guy was amazing. Think about it, guys. You're out in the battlefield. You come home. You haven't been with your wife in who knows how long. And he doesn't go home to sleep with his wife because he says that all of the guys, all the fellas are fighting in the field. I mean, that wouldn't be right for me to go home and be with my wife. And so David says, okay, well, let me get him drunk. Because when you get drunk, you know, you usually do what you want to do, right? The flesh, right? He still doesn't go home. And so what does David do? He writes a little note for Joab. He says, I want you to put Uriah in the heat of the battle. He seals it. This guy carries his own death sentence. They go, they take him to the battle. Joab says, okay. He puts him in the front. Uriah dies. And then David says, okay, Bathsheba, you can come and be my wife. He wipes his hands. He says, I'm good. I got away with my sexual sin. I got away with my manipulation. I got away with my murder. This is David. Think about it. It's a crazy background when you look at this. And so, you know, when you read the story, uh, after Uriah died, David took Bathsheba as his wife. People probably thought, you know, perceived him to be a great guy to take care of her. And after it was all done, he probably said, wow, that was a close one. I almost got caught. And now David probably thinks he could just move on with his life. I'll just move on. Everything's going to be good. But understand this. Your sin will find you out. Right? And that's what we read in the scriptures. And that's exactly what happened. You know, David thought he could just move on in life, but he couldn't for a number of reasons. I mean, the sin just would eat away at his very bones. I mean, he would soon discover that such hypocrisy and carnality was like cancer to the core, like millions of termite bites on the sin side, right? No matter how self-righteous he pretended to be, it was futile in the sight of God. His life was wasting away because he was a hypocrite. You can't live that life as a child of God. He couldn't get away with it because of these breaking bones on the inside. And he couldn't get away with it because of his dear brother on the outside. And Nathan confronts David with this perfect parable. And David, you know, taking it all in, unknowingly indicts himself it's justice, and really, in all reality, David knew that he should have died. The confrontation eventually led to confession, and thank God, genuine repentance on David's part. And, you know, that's the main difference between David and Saul. In one sense, it almost seems like David's sins were worse but Saul never repented. And again, only the Lord knows the condition of the heart. But David did repent. And as he does, the load is lifted. 
and David finally comes clean. You know, and, and you might look at it and think, well, he had no other option. You know, Nathan busted him. No, he's the king. I mean, he ran the country. He could have run away. He could have said, guards, come in here, soldiers, kill this guy, Nathan. Get him out of my sight. I'm the king. I can do whatever I want. I'm above the law. But he did the right thing because God, for the last, it was close to a year, they say maybe, I don't know, 11 months, it was just crushing him. Because you can't escape your sin. You're, it haunts you when you're honest. And so the load is lifted. David comes clean. And, and what ends up happening is eventually he writes this psalm. You know, Warren Wiersbe said this, For nearly a year he attempted to cover up his sin, but God does not allow his children to sin successfully. <laughs> and I like that. And so he writes a psalm. And we read in Psalm 51, in verse 1, it says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness and according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. I'm just curious, how many of you here did confession to a priest when you were growing up? I'm just curious. The rest of you didn't even do that, huh? <laughs> no, maybe you were raised a Christian. You know, but I remember I used to go to the priest and I would confess my sins and he would say, you know, la, 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 go and pray at Ten Hail Marys and then I thought I was good. But, um, you know, we don't have to confess our sins to a priest, but we do have to confess our sins to God. And he will wash us and he will forgive us. And we're going to see that so much of this psalm is a confession. Here David prayed for mercy. He asked for forgiveness. He asked for cleansing because of what he did. It wasn't just a mistake or a blunder or a slip or a mishap. He called it sin. He called it transgression. He says there that it, it was always before him like it haunted him night and day. The thing I like about this, you guys, it, there wasn't a sliver of justification. You know, he didn't try to rationalize it. He didn't make any excuses. He didn't blame it on Bathsheba. Well, she shouldn't have been dressed like that or she shouldn't have been not dressed like that, right? You know, I mean, he didn't say, hey, you know, a lot of guys will say, hey, I'm only human. You know, some guys are like that. You know, if he had... If he would have tried to justify it or explain it or rationalize it or make excuses in any way, then it would have proven that he was not repentant. And I, and I deal with people like this all the time, you know, and they're sorry and they're crying, but then they kind of weave in the reason that they were, you know, seduced by so-and-so and they kind of try to blame shift the other person. Listen, you, if you do that, then you are not repentant. That's what it shows. And that shows that's the way it's always been from the very beginning. Remember when, when, um, when Adam got confronted by God? Who did Adam blame it on? His wife. It's the wife. Man, it's the woman you gave me. And so when the Lord says, okay, let me talk to you, Eve. What's going on? Why would you do this? And who she blame? 
the, the devil. She blamed the serpent. Man, and we like to blame people. Listen, all I can tell you is this. And I know we've gone through things. And I know there are, there are reasons in one sense. But you have to assume the responsibility for the choices that you've made. Because you're free. You're free to choose to do good and to do bad. That's the way God has made us. And so I love the way that he didn't make excuses, right? You know, he said, I've, I've sinned. And, and in verse 4, he said, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and, and blameless when you judge. You know, now in verse 4, it's interesting, against you, you only have I sinned. It doesn't mean that when we sin, it has nothing to do with others, that we don't sin against others per se. As a matter of fact, Peter brought this very question before the Lord in Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And so Peter dealt with this specifically with Jesus. When we sin, we sin against people. I mean, David murdered Uriah. David, you know, took Bathsheba and who knows, man, it was a king. It was kind of like rape almost. He sinned against them. He sinned against her family. He sinned against his family. He sinned against his nation. All that's true. But what David says is that's just, those were just partial. It was just partially against them. It was ultimately, he says, against God. Uh, when we sin, you've got to understand, you are sinning against God. You're spitting in His face. You're socking Him. You're hurting Him. You're grieving Him. That's why in Genesis 39, 9, Joseph said, I, I can't do this against God and sin against God. We have to take those things into consideration. You know, so when David says against you and you only have sinned, he's kind of bypassing those he sinned against in one sense partially but ultimately, he's saying it because we're sinning against God. You know, men can say and do whatever they want. If you do them wrong, right, they can do whatever they want. But, but ultimately, we're going to stand before God. God is the judge. So I don't know if that comforts you. Well, God's my judge. Some people say, well, God's my judge, not you. Well, I don't know if that comforts you. I think it would kind of frighten me <laughs> sometimes, man. You know, Hebrews 10, 30 and 31. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so I like what Spurgeon said on this. He said, the virus of sin lies in its opposition to God. The psalmist's sense of sin towards others rather tended to increase the force of his feeling of sin against God you know David here is just he's doing the right thing he's showing us how to repent he's showing us how to confess he's showing us you know to, to see who we really are even in the next verse he says behold I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me you know when you when you look at that right there David says that he was born in sin and it doesn't mean that his parents sinned. It means that he was born with sin. It's the depravity of man. It's, the, it's who we are in our fallen nature. You know, 
and I'll be honest with you guys, man. Sometimes when I pray, I just I ask the Lord to forgive me for the things I've done. But a lot of times, I just ask Him to forgive me for who I am. I know who I am apart from Christ. And it is ugly. It is ugly. Why? Because I have the fallen man. He's still alive. He's still there. I have to deal with him every day until one day when I'm set free in heaven. And so David here is saying, Lord, I know how bad I am. I sinned against you, God. I, I was born in iniquity. I, was, I know who I am. I'm a sinner. I'm a depraved man. Uh, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Lord, I know who I am apart from you. That's what he's saying right here. He's saying you desire truth in the, in the inward parts and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. You know, right here, you know, we see that God wants us to be real. You know, he doesn't want us to be, you know, actors or pretenders or hypocrites or superficial saints. Why? Because God looks at the heart, the hidden part. You know, you think you can hide it from God and you can't. And you try to hide it against from God. And so what does he do? He says, okay, enough. And he shouts it from the mountaintops. God wants us to be real. None of us are perfect. None of us are perfect. But we can be proper. We can be men of integrity and women of integrity. We can be real. You know, not just here at church, you know, but how are you at home? God wants us to be real, right? I mean, when you look at verse 7, I love it. It says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And so I don't know if you can visualize it. How many of you here remember the days when you used to be like really dirty as a kid? Do you guys remember those days? You used to get really dirty. Your neck was all filthy. Your feet were all filthy. Elbows. I mean, you were all, your face was all dirty. You know, and I used to go like, like that for days. I used to be in dirt. And then eventually, you know, you take a shower and you get cleaned up, right? I mean, that's the same thing that happens to us in the spiritual realm. David here is, is saying, Lord, um, cleanse me, wash me. I, I, I need this, Lord. The hyssop he refers to there in, in verse 7 is this plant that had these hairy stems that would be dipped into the liquid used by priests to sprinkle the blood and the water on the people who needed the ceremonial cleansing. And the first time we read about hyssop in the Bible is Exodus chapter 12 and verse 22 in regards to the Passover. You know, when God said, okay, this is the last thing, man. This is the one that's going to set you free from Egypt. I want you guys to kill them. I want you to take the blood and the hyssop. And so you get that shrub, you dip it in the blood, and then I want you to put it on your doorpost. Boom. Boom, boom. It was like the sign of the cross almost. And then when the, the destroyer came in Exodus 12, verse 23, it says, For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lentil and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your house to strike you. 
And that's what David is asking for. He's asking for the blood of the Lamb. And that is what washes us. You guys know what I'm talking about? There are certain cleansers that clean certain things, right? If I go over to that stainless steel refrigerator over there and I try to use, you know, 409 or Windex or different things, it just messes it up. It makes it worse. Have you guys ever tried that? But they got this certain thing for stainless steel. You know, we have a stove. It, it's like a white glass type of thing. And there's only a certain cleanser. It's the only one that could work. You know, and then you got, you know, armor all for tires and Windex for windows. And you've got the blood of Jesus for your sins. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Revelation 1.5, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And David knew that. And here we see David just praying, Lord, wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. It's interesting what he says in verse 8, make me hear joy and gladness. Now, that's an interesting passage because, you know, what's he saying there? Well, first of all, in the Hebrew language, the phrase right here, it means deep joy. So what he's saying is make me hear deep joy. But I don't think it, he's saying, well, I want to hear myself. I think what he's saying is I want to hear you. Like when the prodigal son came back to his father. You guys remember what happened? The father rejoiced. The father ran to him. The father celebrated. And I think that's kind of what he's saying right here is, Lord, as I get right with you, as I come back to you, Lord, I want to hear like your joy. And it's interesting when you read the scriptures, that's exactly what the Bible says. Did you guys know that? Can you visualize God saying, yeah, getting all excited? You know, like this crazy joy. Can you guys visualize God doing that? So you're like, no, I can't. You, know, you should. Check this out. Luke 15, 7. Jesus said, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. And you're like, okay, well, there's joy in heaven. But check this out, Luke 15, 10. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So it doesn't say that there's a joy of the angels of God. It says that there's joy in the presence of the angels of God. And so you can visualize all those angels and there's God, they're in his presence, and there's God with this great joy. You know, Manny, good job. So praise God, you got it right finally, son. You, you came back to me with all your heart. Oh, I'm so happy. It's kind of like that. That's what David is saying right here in verse 8. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And only God, of course, can do that, right? Only God can forgive us in such a way that, you know, he remembers our sins no more, that he sees them no more. You know, Numbers twenty three twenty one has always been one of my favorite verses in the Bible because I, I know the children of Israel and they're all messed up. You guys remember when, then, when they came out of Egypt? They're saved, but they're still all messed up. 
They're complaining. Oh, man, we wanted better food than this. This man is getting old. This guy Moses, man, what a lousy leader this guy is. And, you know, they're all this kind of stuff. And, you know, they deserve to be wiped out. They're sleeping with the Moabites. I mean, there was sin all over the place. But, but when, when, when Balaam was hired by Balak to curse the children of Israel, it says right there that God observed he saw no sin in them. Why? Because they were covered in the righteousness of Christ. And when you place your faith in Jesus, even though we fall short, when he looks at you, he sees no sin. Think about that. I mean, that's what we see right here. God is able to hide his face from our sins, blot out our inequities. And then, and then it's so cool because we not only need to confess and be forgiven, but we need to be renewed so that we don't do it again. Verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit or a loyal spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. You know, and that's what he had done with, with Saul. He had taken the Holy Spirit from him. And so he says, Lord, I don't want that to happen to me. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. And it's interesting because, you know, the Lord doesn't just want to, you know, clean his heart. You know, David here is praying that God would create in him a new heart. You know, and it's so much more than just kind of like, you know, revamping your life. I mean, we're talking about just a fresh, wonderful, amazing new beginning. I've always told you guys that the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And so we're going to get that right. Then, you know, things can happen. It's interesting what we read right here. He says um, in verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. You know, some people believe that that's in reference to him now being able to share his story. His story about how he did what he did and blew it, but how God came into his life and forgave him. And God would use his testimony to encourage others. You know, and there are a number of men, unfortunately, that have fallen into sexual sin. And, and a good place to, to look is to David. You know, for me, when I look at this story, I think, well, if it happened to David, it can happen to anybody because this guy loved the Lord, but, but, but he repented and he got right and God can do that. You know, a guy doesn't have to stay there. There's a saying, they say, once a cheater, always a cheater. That's not true. God can change a man or a woman. And so he says, uphold me by your, your generous spirit there, so that I can teach transgressors your ways. And so in verse 14, he says, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. It's one thing to kind of learn it, 
It's another thing to, to kind of like, you know, say it, but it's another thing to sing it. And David says, Lord, restore me. Some people think that this is not just him, you know, it's him being restored even into worship. It's interesting how this works. Oh, Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. We talked about this earlier, right? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. You know, and sometimes you wonder, well, is the person really repentant? Only God knows. And I can't really speak for that person over there or that person over there. I can only speak for me. Manny, are you really repentant? Do you really have it in your heart that you hate this sin, that you love the Lord, and you will do everything you can never to do this again, that you're broken, and you know who you've sinned against, and it has just devastated you the way it's devastated others. And when God sees that, then God forgives. See, it's not the religious stuff. It's the broken and contrite heart. God doesn't see these things lightly. And so he closes in verse 18. He says, Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls, on your altar. Now it's an interesting way to end the, the, the psalm. And a lot of people believe that what this in, is in reference to is the coming temple. You know how God would do good there in Jerusalem, in the city of David? Not only would the walls of Jerusalem be built and protected because God would have his hand upon Israel because he showed David grace, but then the temple would be built and God would be glorified. And I'll, and I'll close with this, because, you know, I don't know, you know, David had to suffer the consequences of his sin. You know, God wanted to do more with him, and he wasn't able to do that. You read that in Second Samuel chapter 12. But it's interesting to me how God can even take the sins of our life the, the mistakes, the, the, the tragedies, the falls. And I think that he is so amazing that somehow he can even use those for good. You know, and I think of, uh, you know, my dad, whatever, heroin addict. You know, of course, I would have never wanted him to inject himself with needles. Never in a million years. But... Now he tells others who are struggling with heroin and he tells them, God can set you free because he did it for me. You see, God can take even our worst sins and he can use them for good, but we have to make sure we run to him. And so with David, his two worst sins are he numbered the people and, you know, the fall uh, with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. But in those two sins, God brought 
the temple because he purchased the threshing floor from nation after the numbering the people. He brought the property there as a result of that. And then Solomon was born, the son of Bathsheba, who would build the temple. And, and the lesson is that where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Romans chapter 5 and verse 20. And so, you know, don't go and sin and say, hey, I want some more grace. Don't do that because then you're going to get in trouble. But if you're here and you've fallen and you see, this is how God is. I pray that would encourage you to know that he can forgive you and he can do a great work in your life.